From Johannesburg to Jerusalem, the world is always changing, growing and innovating. Join Benji Shulman for the next hour as he brings you the trendsetters, the thought leaders and those creating news before it happens. Only on the New Blue Review, your favorite Jewish culture and current affairs show. Every Monday at 9 a.m. right here on 101.9 High FM. You're listening to 101.9 High FM. I'm Benji Shulman and this is the New Blue Review. Welcome to the program on this Monday morning. Hopefully you're listening to us and there is no load shedding where you are uh, because then you should be listening on an inverter or on your radio in your car because it is going to be a fantastic show. Later on, we're going to be chatting to Rob Hutchinson from Dear South Africa, finding out what is going on in Parliament. But I'm excited to say that our first guest on the show for today is Karen Morn. She is Twitter's favorite uh, legal correspondent, uh, as well as a number of other important uh, journalistic outlets in our country. And she has recently written a book called Nuclear, Inside South Africa's Secret Deal, talking about the nuclear deal that Jacob Zuma was trying to do with the Russian state. Karen, thank you so much for joining us on the New Blue Review. Welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. I think we must put that in your Twitter bio. What do you think? <laughs> Everyone's favorite Twitter legal. I don't know. I don't know, um, Benji. You have read the replies on, you know, a lot of my reporting, and I definitely would not use the term favorite for some quarters um, of the Twitter sphere. <laughs> I mean, no, <laughs> but thank L- you. L- I, I appreciate the good wishes. L- luckily, Twitter is not real life because otherwise we'd have a few problems. It's so interesting how fast the news cycle works in South Africa, where massive stories are getting unfolding before our eyes every few minutes that you can actually forget things that have happened. But I was just in reading your book, given what's going on in the Ukraine, excuse me, in Ukraine, and and Russia's uh, diplomacy around that, it actually brings back uh, this this uh, story of the the nuclear deal. Uh, but it's actually far more important even than that because it actually is one of the biggest pieces of corruption that sort of never happened. Uh, but in the end, uh, it was only up to a, a few good people who stopped it. And we're going to look into that. But I was kind of interested, why, of all the different parts of the state capture project, of which there were a few, uh, did you decide that the nuclear deal would be the one that you would spend your time on for a book? Well, I think the fact that we're, you know, we're currently getting through our latest um, kind of bout of load shedding at the moment, our energy sector has essentially been the subject of continued strain having sort of devastating impacts on the economy. Um, The geopolitics of South Africa's energy choices or lack thereof have had and continue to have profound implications for all of us. And, you know, what we try to do with this book, myself and Kirsten Pearson, was to really interrogate the way in which something that should be a kind of technocratic decision made in the best interests of everyone in the country turned out to be this big geopolitical statement by the former president and a number of people within his administration about cementing an alliance with Russia that could foreseeably have seen us relying for 23% of our energy from the Kremlin. 
And, you know, obviously questions, you know, there, there have been obvious questions raised about our stance, about the abuses that are happening in the Ukraine and our silence in response to that. But certainly had we been in a situation where we would have been uh, buying energy from Russia conceivably, um, you know, our regal room to assert any kind of independence, even though we're not showing that at the moment, would have been substantially reduced. So it's not just about the energy situation in the country, which is as, as dire as it is at the moment. Energy has been a key site of corruption, of capture, of ineptitude. But it's also this idea that this would have been the most profound act of state capture that South Africa could have been subjected to. And certainly in, in many scenarios, it could have turned us into a little Rus Russian colony. Yeah, in the book, you talk about the fact that one of the sources that you spoke to said that this would have made the arms deal look like a Sunday picnic, which is certainly a very disturbing thought. But just take us back briefly for a few minutes and just tell us, for people who may have forgotten, what actually was the context around the Zuma nuclear Russian deal? Well, we know that the ANC government had always sort of prioritized nuclear as a potential source of energy. And we know the apartheid state, for example, was very intent on nuclear energy. At one stage, the equivalent minister of energy at the time was sort of looking at South Africa being a primarily nuclear energy com uh, country. So the debate really isn't about, you know, is this a viable energy source? Is it not? There will obviously be questions over the environmental impact, the cost, etc. This is really the story of Jacob Zuma sort of, you know, a few years into his presidency, embarking on this kind of hell-bent effort to circumvent national treasury, the, the constitution, proper procurement processes, etc., to conclude a very far-reaching nuclear deal could have cost us in the region of at least one trillion rand with Russia in circumstances where Russia would have had to fund that build. So we would have then been buying our energy from Russia, paying energy, uh, paying money back to Russia for that build with, with the kind of, you know, huge implications of cost overruns, the fact that nuclear takes very long to build, et cetera, et cetera. But what makes the story more perverse is, and we've heard some of this emerging in the state capture inquiry, is that he signed off on that deal literally a few weeks, less than a few weeks after he received treatment for alleged poisoning in the Kremlin that we are able to show he believed was carried out against him by his uh, estranged wife at the time, Maantuli Zuma, and by the CIA. So um, let's talk about that for yeah. a second, because that is the sort of interesting kind of spy versus spy part of the book in, in some respects, because at the time, certainly uh, Zuma looked like he was of ill health. You could see it on TV. He wasn't looking well. Uh, and the sort of scuttlebutt gossip column approach to this was that he had been poisoned by his wife. But it, it had very profound effects that it wasn't just uh, it wasn't just the sort of intra-family saga. It seems to have really affected the way he saw South Africa's place in the world from a geopolitical standpoint. You know, Benji, he's been saying from like 2019 at the state capture inquiry where he went there and said essentially that all his legal and political travails were being caused by the fact that he knew who the apartheid spies were within the ANC. And for three decades, um, foreign intelligence agents and apartheid former spy masters had been trying to kill him. 
for that reason, and that all the issues that he'd faced, whether it was the cutting of his legal funding, his corruption trial, all of it was because of this. Um, and that plot, he believed, was the one that drove the attempted his attempted murder and what that does of course is it you know we have never seen for instance the ANC talk publicly about it address it say whether it as a party believes it or not you know certainly when Zuma fired Pravin Gordon as finance minister because of a an apparent fake intelligence report that essentially accused him of collusion with the West with America, with the UK, you know, Sora Ramaphosa comes out and says this is absolute nonsense, as do leadership of the ANC. But this poisoning rhetoric essentially framed anyone, including National Treasury, including finance ministers who were then targeted as a result. Anyone who sort of said, hey, you know, wait a minute, what about the cost of this? What about the financial implications? What about how are we going to pay this back, etc.? frames them not as someone who's just trying to do their job, but as a potential like agent of kind of nefarious Western agendas. And in Jacob Zuma's mind, aligned with people who he appears to have believed were trying to murder him. So the consequences of that, you know, that kind of toxicity where no one, any objection is framed as is potentially treasonous or an, an alignment to a political ideological agenda that you view as kind of murderous and, and you know, completely um, problematic means that, you know, you then shut down the critique that should have come and that people who were just simply doing their jobs in raising alarm and saying, but we can't do things like that, were hounded out of their positions, fired, targeted, threatened, intimidated, and subjected to fake and scurrilous accusations. Now, what we do know about Russia and its nuclear program is that we're not the only country who's had this kind of this kind of problem. So the Russians mm. uh, have built uh, nuclear power plants in other developing uh, nations, often exactly on this finance model that you have kind of suggested, which is that the countries don't really have enough money to to pay for it. So they get the Russians to build it and then sort of pay them off with the electricity. It, it's, it's not a new phenomenon for countries around the continent. Well, you see, the thing is, is that these intergovernmental agreements, these deals are signed, but it's you don't really see the reactors being built. For instance, in Egypt, you know, there was this nuclear deal that was done between Egypt and Russia. I think it was around the time of the Arab Spring, possibly afterwards. But, you know, those builds, as far as I know, haven't started yet. They're now saying that it's because of the war in the Ukraine. So, you know, one of the the kind of Russian environmental experts that I spoke to, and, you know, there's been excellent research on this, was really, you know, there were there were a lot of question marks, particularly from Carnegie, for example, as, as to whether, and, you know, excellent reporting in the Mail and Guardian, could Russia have even afforded this? If we had a scenario where they were doing a build, own, operate model, which was a proposition that was put forward, you are totally right. It has been suggested in other countries and we would have been paying them back for you know a quarter of our energy that would have been one scenario but the other was that we would be sitting as Egypt is sitting waiting for power plants that may never be built but with this geopolitical hold on us because we've agreed to something with the Kremlin that doesn't give us much wriggle room in terms of our other environmental mix and then obviously the intergovernmental agreement we signed with Russia was very, very tight-knit um, prior to it, of course, being invalidated by the courts, it gave the Kremlin huge power 
um, in terms of who else we would be doing business with in terms of, of our, you know, particularly our nuclear energy sources or, or possible construction. So it it was it was an economically very, you know, terrifying prospect, particularly in the eyes of Treasury and a lot of analysts. But it also, you know, I'm not sure that we would have actually got those plants built within the time frame that we needed them, because I'm not sure that us being dependent on Russia for funding, uh, which was the only scenario that was kind of put forward, would have actually seen those 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 reactors being built. Now, when we talk about expense and, and things costing a lot, again, some, not something that South Africans are unused to, these large projects, particularly in energy, we can talk about the mm. coal power plants in Madupi and, and, and that sort of thing. But some of the projections about what this what, what this would have cost for the country in terms of our GDP are absolutely frightening, right? kind of phenomenal expense that, that even ESCOM itself has said is that they just don't have the costing to do something like this. No, absolutely not. And, you know, I interviewed Jacob Zuma about this and he said, well, that was, you know, that's the only injection anyone can raise is the costs. And, you know, it's going to cost our every money. But he said, well, we, we could be making trillions. We'll be making trillions. And, you know, we look at one of the presentations that's done by the committee that he chairs to cabinet and the energy department where, you know, they're saying some or other academic who's subsequently disputed the veracity of what they were um, attributing to him, where they were saying, no, no, we could make a profit of 3.2 trillion rand over 60 years. Meanwhile, you know, Lungisa Fuzile, these treasury officials are going, you know, this is going to put electricity tariffs through the roof. You know, we may have a scenario where if we provide a guarantee as treasury that we'll pay back if ESCOM can't, you know, we would have to, you know, could impact on social grants. It could impact on healthcare. It could uh, impact on education. So, you know, it wasn't just that there was this kind of, well, you know, we'll make money. It, it it would have had devastating impacts, I would argue, on the poorest of the poor, which were people were, which were dependent on the state for provision of grants, services, health, education. You know, the electricity, potential implication for electricity tariffs would have been absolutely profound. Yeah, absolutely, and uh, quite disturbing. We're talking today to Karen Morn. She is a journalist and author, and we are talking to her about her book, along with Kirsten Pearson, called Nuclear Inside South Africa's Secret, Inside South Africa's Secret Deal. I'm Benji Shulman, and this is 101.9 Chai FM. This is the New Blue Review with Benji Shulman. You're back with 101.9 Chai FM. I'm Benji Shulman, and this is the New Blue Review. Talking today to Karen Morn about her new book, Nuclear Inside South Africa's Secret Deal, talking about the nuclear deal that was attempted by Jacob Zuma between South Africa and Russia. Now, Karen, we've we become very used to the sort of other side of the story when it comes to state capture, is that we've had this sort of long, thankfully, good history of whistleblowers, people saying something is going wrong, we need to stop it. And and this case was was like that, but also different, because it sort of pitted Jacob Zuma really not so much against individual whistleblowers, but sometimes even against his own his own ministers, against his own departments, and even ministers who don't, for example, have such a great record on, on corruption. So it's it's an interesting case in the in the universe of state <laughs> capture about how the the internal systems of of governments operated or in some cases failed to operate. 
I mean, there was this great quote a few years back. I think it was in, you know, uh, where Jacob Zemo was talking about, you know, how he wished he was a dictator. And, you know, this kind of, you know, said, well, you know, if I were a dictator, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And it was this interesting collision where you obviously have the Kremlin where, you know, a personality such as Putin is allowed to kind of single-handedly dominate an entire nation's kind of, you know, geopolitical policies, economic policies. I mean, he's he's a completely larger than life figure and he has those kind of dictatorial tendencies. But then you come to South Africa where you have a constitutional democracy in which power is vested in the national treasury, constitutionally speaking, to ensure that procurement is fair, equitable, proper processes are followed. It meets the objectives of ensuring that the rights of all South Africans are protected, that we're not held hostage to procurement practices that are fundamentally um, at odds with with our national interest and with the interests of our democracy. Of course, you know, what state capture did was completely turn that that kind of constitutional model on, of procurement on its head. We know we've seen the, you know, 40 billion, 57 billion state capture contracts that the Gupta family and their network were rewarded with because of their alignment to to Zuma and and certain elements within his administration. But what was interesting was that, you know, and we explore this in the book, is that prior to that, you had the Mbeki administration where there was this close relationship between him and Trevor Manuel. Trevor Manuel served as a finance minister for 13 years. And there was trust, there was mutual respect, and financial decisions were made, which were fundamentally quite wise and which, you know, managed to put the South Africa South Africa in a pretty good financial situation. You then have Zuma, who doesn't, you know, on on a very real level, appear to grasp that, you know, you you cannot simply because you believe that doing a deal with Russia is the best deal for the country. You can't simply push that forward. You know, like whether whatever large procurement is, you've got to go through the proper processes. There need to be feasibility studies. There needs to be funding models. There needs to be a sense of the implications for the budget. There needs to be sign off. You need to be doing things in a way that's going to resist legal challenge, but it's also going to be, you know, proper procurement practice. Unfortunately, we haven't seen a lot of that in South Africa, but particularly in a a project of this scale, which would have been the largest that we'd ever done as a country, every every I need needs to be dotted and every T needs to be crossed. And that's essentially what Treasury was saying. But because he has this idea, which he vocalizes, that, you know, because of this geopolitical vision he has, the BRICS, you know, commitment to BRICS, et cetera, et cetera, that any resistance to the nuclear deal is, in fact, not legitimate. It's been driven by nefarious motives. He then accuses the finance ministers, Nene, Pravin, Gordon, et cetera, who start putting up resistance and saying, but we, you know, we we as Treasury aren't being consulted, these are problems, et cetera, et cetera, as kind of agents of the West, uh, you know, agents of apartheid spies. And we show that, like how they get, you know, hit with these fake intelligence reports and various other things happen. And then, of course, you have someone like Tina Jumat-Peterson um, and also the subsequent minister, uh, Minister Kubai, who reveal in the book, you know, I mean, a lot of people would have very rightful skepticism of Jamat Peterson, but essentially they they sort of become unlikely barriers to this project by saying, well, you know, these examples of how you're trying to, for instance, buy nuclear energy through vendor parades, which is unheard of, you you simply can't do this. You can't go about this. And Jumat Peterson was one of the more interesting people that I spoke to. I think a lot of people are going to have differing opinions. 
But certainly from the documentation we were able to find, the people who spoke to in Treasury and the Energy Department, they do speak about in very specific instances how she she put blocks in place. And what she said to us when we eventually convinced her to, to talk to us was that her whole project was aimed at delaying this, quote unquote, until such time as the courts could overturn it. And I mean, that for me was one of the most profound admissions in this entire book, was this awareness, both from her, but also I think from Treasury, because they left a paper trail everywhere, was that this was not going to be something that would be solved politically. It was going to be something that would be resolved yet again, um, and, you know, I think in in a problematic way for the judiciary, but by the courts, because it seems that politically, the ANC government isn't able to hold the line in terms of demanding that its leadership acts constitutionally. It seems increasingly, you know, that we as South Africans are increasingly and problematically, I would argue, you know, dependent on the courts to do that. Now, I want to take you down a, a brief side road, which I just thought was absolutely fascinating in the book, because, of course, the Russians aren't the only game in town here. The Kuberg mm. plant was built by the French, for example, and they and the French worked very hard, I think, on that relationship with ESCOM. And, of course, the Americans have a long history as well with us. And one of the things that you said, that we still had some nuclear material that was lying around effectively from when we disarmed our nuclear bombs in, in 94. And, and we were using it for research purposes or something in Pelandaba. And the Americans were becoming a little bit perturbed that this thing was going to get stolen and used in a terrorism incident. This is one of the most fascinating aspects because the timeline, I think, is quite compelling. So as you rightly point out, we had nuclear weapons. The apartheid had nuclear apartheid government of nuclear weapons. We voluntarily dismantled them and, you know, disarmed them in 1992, the first country in the world. And I think maybe the only one to ever do so. And then that highly enriched uranium is used to create medical isotopes for the treatment of cancer. But there's a lot of it left over. And the Americans, under the administration of, of Barack Obama, start getting increasingly concerned about this and start writing to Zuma on more than one occasion to say, listen, you know, this could have, if this is, ends up in the hands of terrorists, this could, you know, be globally devastating. I mean, I think one of the things that was spoken about was you could could bomb the entire Washington sort of several times over. And he sort of says, you know, there was a lot of concern from America because, of course, in 2007, Pelendaba had been broken into and no one knew exactly how that had happened. So obviously for the Americans, this is a matter of extreme concern. So they write to Zoom and say, listen, various propositions on how this uranium can be taken into their custody or, or, or basically, you know, it's kind of radioactive power to form the basis of a nuclear weapon essentially taken off the table. So, And Zuma refuses. And that's in like late 2013. And then in 2014, we then see this, oh, I'm a victim of a poisoning. The CIA is, is coming after me. I'm going to do a nuclear agreement with Russia, American, of of course, you know, with this whole poisoning project put in, you know, out in the ether with the ANC, you know, they were never going to give that highly enriched uranium to them. But certainly the idea that somehow the CIA was trying to kill Zuma, which there seems to be no real evidence, because, you know, there's no evidence that he was in fact poisoned, would have been incredibly convenient for the Kremlin to take advantage of. However, he came to believe that. Um, and we can all speculate on where exactly the genesis of that particular belief came. Talking to Karen Morn today, she is the author of Nuclear Inside South Africa's Secret Deal. I'm Benji Shulman, and this is 101.9 High FM. 
This is the new Blue Review with Benji Shulman. 101.9 Chai FM, I'm Benji Shulman, talking today to Karen Morn, author of Nuclear, Inside South Africa's Secret Deal. Now, Karen, you have uh, been putting the book uh, out there. It's doing quite well on the, the bestseller lists in, in exclusive books as well as around the country. You're going to be doing a, a bit of an in-person authoring touring from now? Well, I'm really looking forward to the Franchuk Literary Festival, which is coming up in May, where I'm going to be in conversation with Hermian Cronier, who's the former head of the investigating directorate at the NPA. I'm actually going to be interviewed by her, which is amazing. Um, but really looking at, you know, the geopolitical implications of this and the fact that, you know, as I as I said before, this was one of the most profound attempted acts of state capture that South Africa has survived. But, you know, our current situation, um, you know, with energy and also with our geopolitical stance towards the Ukraine crisis very much illustrates that the concerns that become apparent in this book are things that South Africans should be aware of and should be um, actively seeking answers about, you know, if we are going to have some kind of sustainable energy future and if we are going to adopt a geopolitical stance towards the dealings of, of other countries that's coherent and actually morally defensible. Well, there you go. If you want to get a copy of the book, uh, exclusive, and I'm sure all other good bookstores, Nuclear Inside, South Africa's Secret Deal, Karen Morn and Kirsty Peterson, who have put this together. Excellent read. Uh, and Karen's done a great job of creating a book that's, I mean, energy procurement is fairly technical, Karen, and you've done a good job of, of making it for stupid people like me much more uh, accessible, as well as being on an important topic. So go out and, uh, and get it really worthwhile. And and some great stories that we haven't even had a chance to cover, including how the, the courts overturned it and some of the good civil society actions around that. So there's some really interesting other stuff, actual discussions with Zuma, all sorts of things so we haven't had a chance to talk about. Karen, thank you so much for joining us and uh, good luck with the book tour and uh, with getting it out there to the public. It's been an absolute pleasure and we both know you are definitely not stupid, Benji, but thank you for having me. <laughs> well, there we go. Karen Morn saying I'm not stupid. I'm going to put that on my Twitter <laughs> bio.